Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. In the first of a new series of podcasts featuring those who shaped politics over the last 50 years, The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks to Lord Taverne of Pimlico. As Dick Taverne, he was a minister in Harold Wilson's government, working with Roy Jenkins on many of the economic and social reforms of the 1960s, before being forced out of the Labour Party in 1973 because of his support for membership of the European Economic Community. How does the calibre of politicians compare between now and the 1960s? Were we better governed? And how close was Roy Jenkins to splitting the Labour Party by creating a Social Democrat Party in 1973 rather than 1981? Dick Taverne recalls politics, past and present. Lord Taverne, you were born um, in 1928 in the jungles of Sumatra to a, a Dutch father and moved to the United Kingdom in time for the Second World War. You went to Charterhouse and to Balliol College, Oxford, and you chose the Labour Party, uh, becoming an MP in 1962. Some people from an affluent background would join the Labour Party because they felt there was an almost scientific way of better ordering society to make people uh, uh, more accomplished, better off. Uh, and, and others joined the Labour Party as a form of getting closer to ordinary people. Which was it for you? Well, I, I was interested in politics and I think that the idea of an MP did appeal to me. Uh, but I became a barrister, and uh, it was uh, at that stage that I really got more and more involved, um, and I really was very pleased in the end when, for political reasons, because when I, I became a minister, I had to give up practice at the bar. But it was a, a, it was a very sort of different era. Um, at that stage, people practiced uh, two professions. I mean, they would be MPs and have another profession, which you can't do now. Uh, constituencies were much less well organized. Um, and people didn't actually have the sort of obligation to be social workers as well as to be as, act as, count, as sort of super councillors the way which they're required to now. I mean, if I may give an example, Roy Jenkins was MP for uh, Stepford, or I can't remember exactly which constituency, Manchester. And I said to Roy, uh, how often do you go to your constituency? He says, well, I try and go at least once or twice a month. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, and, and what, what do you do then? He said, well, last Friday I went to my constituency, and I was met by the agent, and I was interviewed by the local radio, and I made some remarks with some local um, to, uh, to, to the new local newspaper. I had an interview with the local newspaper, and then there didn't seem to be an awful lot to do. So after a while, I went home again. <laughs> and yet he was regarded as a good MP. Now that's inconceivable now. So it was a very different time. But I found that practicing as a as a barrister, when I was really much more interested in politics in some ways, and as an MP, was a very, very oppressive uh, double duty. 
And I was absolutely delighted when I became a member of parliament, and especially when I became a minister, and I could concentrate on, on politics full-time. In your, in your experience, when did the role of the MP, or the perception of the role of the MP, change from being a, a, a Westminster legislator to uh, really a sort of an ombudsman for, for the failure of, of local government, which is what a lot of very constituency-based MPs now appear to be? Yes, well, it, it was different in different constituencies. And I was elected as a gauge scholite when I became an MP in 1962 um, and was very much a Jenkinsite. I've always really been a social democrat rather than a sort of full-blooded socialist. Uh, and I still feel I am a social democrat. But um, the... Uh, the, the, in, in, I had a very left-wing constituency, and uh, after a while, they did, weren't in the least satisfied with having somebody who was a Gateskalite or a Jenkinsite, and they wanted a full-blooded socialist. And the, there'd be objections locally from some of the parties saying, we didn't elect you to be a minister. And indeed, they strongly objected to be a minister in Wilson's government, which they regard as a very, very right-wing organization. We didn't elect you to be a minister. We objected, elected you to be a, a representative for Lincoln. So there was that feeling in certain quarters at that stage, too, that an MP should be very much the local representative first. But then there were a lot of people, like Roy Jenkins, who regarded their first duty, I mean, of all, to be an effective legislator and to play a part in national politics. So the atmosphere in that stage was rather different. So you, you were elected an MP for Lincoln in 1962. You, you very rapidly became a, a, a minister. You were a Home Office minister from 1966 uh, and then the Treasury, in both times working with Roy Jenkins as the Secretary of State. Um, can you give a, a pen portrait of what it was like to work with Roy Jenkins during that period? It was an absolute delight. Roy Jenkins, I think, was one of the most outstanding uh, politicians we've had in recent times, one of the two or three most outstanding ones. I was enormously lucky to be a minister for the four years uh, after the 1966 election, because as Home Secretary, he was absolutely outstanding. It was a time when more reform was accomplished when he was Home Secretary for about two years than in a period of many decades before. In fact, in uh, Ben Pimlot, in his um, biography of Wilson, said that there were millions of people who benefited by our reforms. We decriminalized homosexuality. It was the reform of of the abortion laws, uh, flogging was abolished in prison, suspended sentence were obtained, the theatre censorship was abolished. Uh, one could go on. The police were f fundamentally reformed, and I was very much associated with that. He was an outstanding Home Secretary. Uh, and then, as again, as Chancellor, he took off and he became Chancellor in a position when our prospects were dire. In fact, the Sunday Times that then said that it wasn't just the, the, the future of the government that was at stake, it was the future of democracy in Britain was at stake. We had a devaluation and very dire, pro, dire prospects. And yet uh, he was a very successful chancellor in writing a huge balance of payments deficit, strengthening the reserves, 
and with an average of 4% growth during the period when he was Chancellor. So, uh, And he was such a delight to work with because he was such a witty man. He would dominate at Parliament at that stage. Uh, there was, for example, um, a, a famous occasion when a, a spy called Blake escaped from prison and it was thought to be a ghastly effect because he was responsible for the death of, of numerous uh, uh, British agents abroad. And a, a motion, of, motion of censure was moved in the House of Commons by uh, McLeod and Enoch Powell, formidable debaters. Um, and people were very much afraid that this would be a most embarrassing time. Labour government already very unpopular. And it was such a triumph by Roy Jenkins that at the end of it, uh, all the Labour people were waving their order papers and said, and one of them said to me, God, can't we arrange, this had been so good for morale, can't we arrange for a spy to escape every week? Uh, I mean, he was an astonishingly good uh, speaker at that stage. He lost his touch very much when he came back from Brussels as next president of the commission. Uh, but he was dominant in Parliament, but he was also such a witty man. I mean, um, he was prepared his speeches very carefully, but was very good impromptu in answering questions. And I remember one occasion when um, uh, Enoch Powell, a formidable parliamentarian, asked him a question, and he paused for a long time before giving an answer. And on his benches, his supporters were getting very, very restive, uh, and thinking, God, you know, he's he, he's been flawed this time. And he looked up the sky, and then he said, the right honourable gentleman, this is Enoch Powell in his heyday, the right honourable gentleman's logic, as always, is impeccable. But since he invariably starts from false premises, he's bound to reach a false conclusion. Well, I mean, to think that sort of remark, which is in some ways a summary of Powell's career, uh, that sort of remark, to think it up just on the spur of the moment, and he was such good company. Oh, no, I, I really enjoyed my time in office enormously because of Roy Jenkins. Well, whilst Roy Jenkins was Home Secretary and you were working with him as a, a Minister of State, uh, I mean, as you say, many of the big reforms of the so-called permissive society took place, from abolition of hanging to uh, reform of uh, uh, abortion, homosexuality, uh, and, and easier divorce. Of these very socially revolutionary measures, which was the one that was hardest fought at the time and achieved the most opposition? Right. Of course, Roy Jenkins' reforms were not necessarily very popular at the time, and uh, he was somebody who did not let himself be governed entirely by opinion polls. Homosexuality, for example, his reforms were not anything that the, that the uh, government uh, was particularly keen on. Harold Wilson and others thought it was a, was a rather dangerous measure. Um, and yet opinion changed dramatically after that. Uh, often when the law changes, opinion changes. Another thing which he wasn't responsible for, but another reform which was Barbara Castle was responsible for, she was a left-wing um, MP, very much a Bevanite, but uh, she was an absolutely excellent minister and minister of transport. And one of the things which she introduced 
which was very unpopular, it seemed, was drinking and driving laws. Uh, the fact that you would be tested and you might be disqualified for having drunk too much. Uh, well, uh, the people thought it was a very brave thing to do, and yet almost immediately after that reform, it became a very popular one. Um, and the same was true then of the decriminalization of homosexuality. I mean, people made all sorts of jokes about it at the time. And in my constituency, the, some of the left-wing members of my management committee said, what are you doing in the House of Commons talking about homosexual law reform? You should be discussing unemployment. Uh, and there was a, a sort of general feeling about it that it was very much a sort of intellectual reform um, it was popular with intellectuals, didn't really uh, affect the ordinary person. But a lot of his reforms were extremely popular, uh, became very popular later. It was a very different kind of parliament. Um, I mean, my own experience, I don't think could happen so easily today. I was very pro-Europe. I was a, a very pro-Europe as a student. I joined a pro-European club called the Strasbourg Club. And I always advocated we should be members. I always thought that when Atchison said Britain has lost an empire but hasn't yet found a role, that our diminished statement after no longer being a great imperial power would be replaced by being a positive member of what was a very influential bloc, Europe. And in fact, that by sharing sovereignty would increase our influence. That was my view. But my local party, very left-wing party, was very anti-Europe. They regarded the European Union as a Catholic, no, the Treaty of Rome was a Catholic conspiracy, and it would, was a, a capitalist conspiracy as well as a Catholic conspiracy. So when I voted uh, with the Roy Jenkins dissidents at the time when the issue was, should we join the European community, and Heath was Prime Minister, it would never have got through if the Labour Party hadn't rebelled with large numbers, and 69 of us voted against a three-line Labour whip in order to ensure that the entry to Europe became effective. Well, uh, in my constituency, they, they, were, uh, they then voted no confidence in me uh, because I had disobeyed the views of the party. Um, <clears throat> in fact, one of those basic uh, issues in the by-election was something which would be completely unimportant today, namely the doctrine of Burke, that an MP is a representative and not a delegate. And I said, look, who do you... Now, I've always been pro-European. Um, I'm not going to vote differently because my local party dictates to me that I must vote uh, against my principles. And it was very popular. I had a uh, we had a tremendous public meeting when I explained why I had resigned and was going to fight as an independent, which I did. I voted, voted as an, became an independent um, lay, uh, social democrat when I won the election, but which I won overwhelmingly. But one of the people who supported me at one of the meetings was a famous journalist called Bernard um, was Levin, and very witty man. And he said the choice in Lincoln, uh, where then we had a dictate, no, the uh, issue was dictated to me. I had to vote as a party directed, not as I felt in principle. The choice in Lincoln is between dictaphone and a dictaphone. 
course, people don't know nowadays what a dictaphone is, but it was a means of taking dictation. Um, that sort of issue would be unthinkable today. So it was a very different parliament, but but it was also a, a parliament with you know, with people of considerable stature. I mean, as I mentioned, I had great respect for the Conservatives at that stage, the party of Macmillan and Carrington and MacLeod, uh, which gave independence to most of the countries in the, in the uh, empire, uh, was a very different party with a very different view from the Conservative Party today, which has become very right-wing and uh, uh, dominated, began to chauvinist in its attitude. Um, so, uh, yes, it was a different era in politics. I, I will come to uh, the modern day in a moment, but I just want to go back to the those, those heady days in late 1972 and 1973 when uh, your local party deselects you and uh, you, you stand for the Democratic Labour Party and win in a famous by-election. Did you have, uh, were there a lot of senior Labour colleagues trying to dissuade you from rocking the boat? Were they privately supportive but didn't want to uh, stand by you in public? Uh, and, and how were your relations with Roy Jenkins over this period? Well, uh, interesting question. Of course, I was regarded as very much a sort of traitor by the Labour loyalists. Uh, how did you dare vote? And in fact, there's a lot of others. But how did you dare vote against a three-line whip and support a conservative government? I mean, it was regarded as a heinous offence. Um, and uh, they were determined to squash me. I mean, more Labour MPs took part in the by-election to stop me being elected than had ever happened in any by-election. Um, so uh, the the left and indeed the other loyalists in the Labour Party, which had voted rather in favour of Labour, went to private meeting later, which voted in favour later, but at that stage were very empty, uh, were passionately opposed to my action. And my friends uh, who had voted with me thought I was very unwise. Um, I mean, I was regarded as, act as uh, committing political suicide, uh, and in fact, um, the press too thought that I was, had no chance whatsoever. Uh, uh, but an lo awful lot of people privately came and supported me strongly. And the Economist had a piece saying it was an extraordinary event there because there were uh, housewives uh, filling in envelopes side by side with trade unionists whom they would have regarded as in intolerable extremists before. There was a wonderful atmosphere in that by-election in which people came from all over the country to support me in large numbers because I had stood on principle against trying to be, by somebody trying to dictate how I should vote. It was a, a famous occasion. And of course, our, our result was absolutely devastating. We won overwhelmingly. I had, I can't remember exactly what my proportion of the vote was, but it was more or less, uh, I got as many votes as Labour and Conservatives put together. Yes, so I, I, in many ways you were a little bit ahead of your time. It was almost a dry run for 
uh, what became the SDP, the Social Democrat Party, in 1981. Um, you know, there you were standing against, you know, standing very clearly on, on a pro-Europe platform, as the SDP and the, the Gang of Four later did. Um, those figures from the Gang of Four, people like Bill Rogers, Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins and David Owen, did you try and persuade them uh, to join your Democratic Labour Party in, in 1973, or did you did you choose to go it along, uh, go it alone, or was that really a situation forced upon you? Well, there was a very interesting uh, moment, which I think has never been recorded and hasn't been. Uh, it wasn't realised because people say at that stage Roy Jenkins was opposed to the idea of a new party. Uh, during that time, of course, my Labour colleagues had to keep their distance from me. Um, because there I was a lone figure and regarded by the party as a whole as having betrayed the party. And I met Roy at a party uh, before the election, before the actual by-election, and uh, he said, let's have dinner together. So he and Jennifer, his wife, and my wife uh, went to have a, a dinner, and I then said to him, Roy, uh, if I think I'm going to win this by-election, I don't have had no idea whether I win it by a lot or that, but almost the chances are good that I'll win it. Now, if you come and support me on this platform, which I'm fighting on, uh, I think that you will presumably bring some Labour people with you. You'll be kicked out of the party. We'd in fact be trying to form a new party. But there has been a great feeling in the country at this stage that there is, it is time for a new centre party. There was a Times editorial talking about 12 million Jenkinsites in an alliance with the Liberal Party, a new party. Uh, so I put it to him, you know, what about a new party? And he says, I see all the arguments for that, and I know that there is a great move that way. In fact, sometimes, you know, unexpected things happen. I was at a place, a taxi driver wound down his... His, his after the day, after the vote for entry, wound down his window and shouted at him, "Stick to your guns, mate!" And that was a sort of feeling that he was somebody who was sticking to his gun and acting on principle. And I think uh, he then answered. He said, "Yes, I'd bring some Labour MPs with me. I think about a dozen." I said, "Oh, I think that's an overestimate myself because I didn't think at that stage either Shirley Williams." or um, Bill Rogers, let alone David Owen, who was very much in favor of a new party being, a, if it ever rose, being a new Labour Party. But uh, anyway, they were very much opposed to the, to the idea of what I was doing. Um, he said, uh, but nevertheless, I'll bring some MPs with me, um, but I don't think this would be the right time, because it had been a form of local government, which meant that all councillor seats were up for election in May, the following May, and this was March. Um, and if we're going to found a new party, we'd have to bring the moderates with us, and we'd have to have an organization. Now, that means moderates means a lot of the councillors, and the councillors at the moment don't have an organization. And if they have to fight a, a council election, they have to stick with Labour, so it's the wrong time. And Jennifer actually told me, no, it's not that. It's he, I think it's not just that. It's Roy just couldn't face the bitterness of the 
uh, hatred that would result, which would be far worse in his case than it was in mine. Um, but Roy said, though, so I said, yes, I could see all those arguments, Roy, but I don't know that you'll ever have a time which is as good because your reputation this moment is so high. And he said, well, there'll always be a chance. I mean, the Labour Party's always splitting. There'll be another chance in the future. And of course, that chance didn't come until 1981, which was some 17 years later. Um, and he did uh, in a, uh, say that, in fact, when I, I fought as an independent, and I won the next general election, which is, of course, much more difficult, but I, won the, I lost the election after that. And he said that, that the, his failure to support me was something which was on his conscience uh, for uh, all the time afterwards. So he did very much toy with the idea and the possibility of forming a new party even in 1973. Do you think uh, if Roy Jenkins and perhaps some others as well had joined you in 1973, that would have led to a, a, a transformative change in British politics for the second half of the 1970s? Or, or were you actually a bit ahead of your time in and, and 1981? What was a more propitious moment? I actually think Roy was right, and it wasn't the right time because I wouldn't have got the moderates. Um, so, uh, and, and we didn't have the organisation uh, I think uh, it, the time in, in the 1980s, early 1980s, was a, was a much more a propitious time. And of course, the SDP very nearly won if it hadn't been for the Falklands War. At one stage, it showed that the SDP ahead of the Labour Party in popular polls. But after the uh, Falklands War, when Mrs. Thatcher riding high, and then there came the, the sort of uh, uh, th and the, the three after the three. Anyway, um, after that time, um, the fortunes of Labour of the SDP uh, faded, and uh, of course the 1983 election destroyed them. But if at one stage, if Labour had really fallen into third place, the SDP continued there and hadn't been for the Falklands War, that might have been the end of. Uh, two-party politics, and the SDP could really have broken through. And, of course, the other effect of the SDP was, at a later stage, uh, to show that a break in the Labour Party you know, would be quite possible, and I think it was a major element in enabling Neil Kinnock to make the Labour Party uh, electable again, when in 1983 it, it suffered the biggest reverse as it has defeated Labour's history until we got the last election when Corbyn was Labour leader. So, so the, the second half of the 1970s, you were out of Parliament. As you say, you, you were re-elected in the January 1974 election, but then lost in, in October 1974. 1981, the STP is formed. You, you join the, the STP and, and stand in a couple of by-elections for the STP. Uh, unsuccessfully. Do do you regret not becoming an MP for the SDP during that period? Or actually, do you think the, the battles you fought and won have been better fought outside the House of Commons? No, I felt that I had to stand because, after all, I'd argued for a new party. I'd argued for SDP in 1973, and it had now come about, so I felt I had to stand for them. But I was not particularly keen to get back into Parliament. Um, I, in fact, uh, 
felt in some ways that my greatest contribution to public life in Britain was um, has, has been later and, and had nothing to do with being in Parliament. Um, my first contribution was that in uh, the early 1970s, um, and particularly after I'd lost my seat, I uh, launched a new institute called the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Yeah. There was already such a body, but I was approached, would I try and get it off the ground? And because um, uh, it had no no money and, and no researchers, uh, and I I did uh, I think play quite an important part in getting in establishing the new uh, institute. And the Institute of Fiscal Studies is now, of course, regarded as something of a, almost Olympian authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was a major contribution I made. And the other thing was that since I was a point after I was appointed House of Lords. I got very interested in the public understanding of science, and I formed an organization called Sense About Science, which is doing extremely well. In both cases, a major factor was that, not not that I was particularly good as a head of it, but in finding the Institute of Fiscal Studies, I pointed as my successor a brilliant young 25 or 26-year-old called John Kay, uh, and all the subsequent directors have been superb economists, mm. Andrew Dillnott, Robert Choate, and Paul Johnson today. Uh, well, similarly, uh, in 19, oh, I forgot when it was, 2002, uh, I formed uh, the Sense About Science. Lord Tavern, you, you set up Sense About Science. Was that primarily because of the arguments being made against uh, uh, gene-modified uh, um, um, produce. Yes, an awful lot of nonsense exists in the public attitude to science. I mean, one of the results of that is a very damaging development, namely an anti-vaccination movement, which has cost a lot of lives because measles, which is extinct, has become a, 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 popu- a quite widespread disease again. And there was a general feeling, and I've always felt that anti-science, which takes the form of support for homeopathy, for which there's no evidence whatsoever, and which has also meant that uh, some of the the popular feelings... I mean, I'm very much with Greenpeace and the other forces in in fighting fighting on climate change, destruction of the forests, and preservation of the species, and pro-diversification. But they've also done a lot of harm in opposing genetic modification because one major development, for example, golden rice, could have prevented almost millions of deaths in India because of the shortage problem of lack of vitamin A in the diet. Um, and it, there's never been any evidence of harm to human health or the environment from genetically modified crops and genetically modified food. Um, and yet, it's done a lot of harm. I mean, and, and some of the, again, um, uh, of course one's got to be very cautious about nuclear power and about the uh, arguments against it. I'm not saying that I'm a whole hog supporter of nuclear power. But in Germany, the anti-science uh, movement is very strong. I mean, they, they don't have allow any GM development at all. And look what happened after the Japanese tsunami. Uh, Germany was likely to be covered by a tsunami. The first thing they did was abolish all development of nuclear power in Germany. And what was the result? They went over to brown coal, which is the most polluting fossil fuel you could possibly have as a source of energy. 
So, uh, I mean, there are some uh, there are some people who allow their enthusiasm for very good causes uh, to overrule the sense of, uh, of the rationalism and the respect for evidence. I mean, uh, the organisation which I started, Sense About Science, has done very well in pushing all the time. What you know? Ask for the evidence. Base your actions on evidence. Don't go for what may be a popular cause at the time, uh, something like you know the anti-vaccination movement. Go for the evidence, and it doesn't an awful lot of good. In fact, I wrote a book about it, which was rather successful, called "The March of Unreason." Uh, no, I think that that um, I, I I took up the cause of science, having learnt no science at school at all. Um, partly it was sort of affected Parliament, you know, so when an MP says, I know nothing about science, it's not an admission, it's often a boast. I'm not one of these boffins, I'm a person with my feet on the ground. Uh, I mean, it is absurd. I think, in fact, there's much more respect for science now than there was um, in, in the earlier 19, uh, or earlier century, part of the end of the 19th century. Sorry, 20th century. Uh, there's there's a lot of more respect for science now, and the, it is listened to much more carefully. Uh, but uh, the, we've got to watch the anti-science brigade all the time because they can do a great deal of harm, and they have done a great deal of harm in preventing the development of GM crops in the third world. And when you're um, promoting a pressure group like Sense About Science, what? In terms of the priorities, is, is the first priority to influence the legislators and parliament? Is this primarily a Westminster engagement or is influencing the media, influencing other groups, uh, other pressure groups e equally important? How, how wide and broad should the, can the conversation be drawn or is it actually all about convincing a, a few politicians? Well, I think the politicians have to be con convinced because a lot of the, uh, uh, the I mean, the propaganda uh, if in favour of things like homeopathy, which I'm afraid you know, has been promoted by Prince Charles amongst others, um, uh, it's, it's a very popular cause, and uh, I remember when I raised it in the House of Lords, someone will get up and say, I actually got cured by homeopathy. Well, I mean, people do get better, and they may p give the credit to homeopathy, but there's no evidence that homeopathy um, can have any effect at all, because it's a huge dilution of whatever it is supposed to be that, that's a beneficial effect. Um, uh, sorry, it is a. You know, it seems to me a sort of um, asses bridge. You know that one crosses if one supports some of these uh, extreme uh, anti-science groups. But uh, I'm no, I'm, I'm a keen green, and I think that an awful lot of good has been done by Friends of the Earth and Sense and uh, um, Greenpeace. And of course, climate change is one of the most important things that's happening. And again, I think that this is where these uh, pro-nature, really anti-climate um, change people are doing a tremendous amount of good. Uh, but we've got to base things, uh, our actions on evidence, and uh, that wasn't always the case. I think that Sense About Science had some quite a good effect on public opinion. It got into the schools. I mean, it's, it's the Ask for Evidence campaign has got into the schools, which is very important. But it, it's vital to influence the legislature. And of course, uh, there are now a lot of select committees on science which do very well.
Um, and uh, but the director of Centre About Science, Tracy Brown, has been very effective in in talking to MPs and very effective in taking up public causes through the media. Do you find? I mean, you're in the House of Lords now. Do you find the quality of MPs generally has changed, or maybe I should rephrase that? that the focus of politicians has changed? Are they receptive to different things than perhaps the generation of MPs you, you knew in the 1960s and early 1970s were? Well, uh, first of all, you know, one's got to take notice of the fact that as you get older, you think never quite as good as they were in the past. Uh, but I think that the quality of MPs in the 1960s and 70s, when I got into Parliament, um, was much higher than it is now. Uh, I mean, if you look, at, I know it's a partisan view, but the, the cabinet is a cabinet of pygmies. And the incompetence with which this whole uh, virus, the coronavirus, has been handled. Why are we producing, why are they, have we got the worst results in deaths of any of the fast European countries? Because of part of the action, the influence of people like Boris Johnson, who went around shaking everybody's hand and didn't, and didn't believe in lots of the things, remedies which others were adopting. We were very late in the, in the uh, lockdown. Um, we, we were, and they keep boasting. I mean, this is the other thing. People didn't boast so much in the, in the, in the past about the, how wonderful they were. Boris gets up and says, we are going to have the most marvelous test and track system in the world. And God, we haven't got anything that's anything like as good as what the Germans have done and what others have done. Uh, no, I do think uh, that, that, uh, the standard of politicians is now much lower than it was before, and the respect for politicians is lower than it was. They've never been held in very high regard, uh, but uh, they're held in worse regard now than, than uh, well, I won't mention other people. I think uh, journalists have a, an unfair reputation, uh, just as politicians do. I mean, I found, actually, that most politicians were intelligent people, who were out, who became MPs in order to, to do good. I think it's still true of a lot of them, but the climate is so different and it's so much more partisan. No, I think that uh, that the, the climate today is a lot worse. And look how incompetent we are. And, and why, uh, this will be a final question, why has that climate got worse for politicians? I mean, they are subjected to more media scrutiny than ever before. Is that... Uh, part of the cure or part of the problem? I, I, the answer is I have no idea. I mean, why have pop, has populism uh, spread so far and wide when we are subject to it in this country? But uh, look at America. Why has America now adopted a president like Trump uh, when, in fact, on the whole, the presidents were pretty high statured in the past? Uh, why have... Uh, have popular politicians taken over in Poland, which was a good democracy when it ceased to be a communist, and in Hungary. Uh, I just don't know. You get these changes in public mood, which uh, I, I think uh, I can't explain, and I, I don't know. We have just at the moment, um, I, I you know, feel that Jenkins was wise to warn us that we should uh, expect surprises in politics, um, but 
at the moment, I think it's less true than ever before that uh, one can't forecast what's going to happen. Well, on, on that note, Lord Tavern, Dick Tavern, thank you very much for sharing your recollections of a, a, a life of public okay, service. Well, I enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.